This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you, but not yet. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Bob McDevitt, and I'm the programmer for the I Write Festival, which takes place in March uh, in Glasgow. And it was there uh, in March of last year that I had the great pleasure to first meet Ben Rollins, who came uh, to our festival as part of a, a human rights panel uh, that was organised with Glasgow University. Um, today, for this event, he's going to talk about his book, City of Thorns, um, which is it's an extraordinary piece of work that helps us to try and understand one of the most recurring news stories, I suppose, of recent years, and that is the, the various news stories around what happens to people fleeing war zones and places that they can't live anymore. Where do they go and what happens to them? It's a, it's a brilliant uh, piece of work. I'm sure uh, you're going to enjoy it very much. Uh, Ben's going to speak for half an hour, 40 minutes. Uh, he will then take questions uh, and he'll be signing copies of the book afterwards. So for now, please give a very warm Edinburgh welcome to Ben Rollins. Thanks a lot. Good morning. Thanks for turning out bright and early to hear about Dadaab, which is the world's largest refugee camp. And you might think that you've never heard of it. Some of you, of course, may have done. But most of you have probably seen it. Because when you see images of refugee camps in the press, on the TV, usually you might picture a stereotypical long view of rows of white tents in a red desert, possibly with some very thin-looking people in the foreground. And usually those are images are stock photos of Dadaab, the world's biggest refugee camp, which is nicknamed the City of Thorns, the title of my book. Um, there are no pictures behind me, there are no pictures in the book. Um, and there's a reason for that. And that's because I think these images uh, of faceless towns in the desert like this, of boats chock full of people, they tend to promote distance, I find, rather than actually bringing us closer to the reality of the refugee camp. Because what we see is a faceless town or a faceless boat, we don't actually see the world through the eyes of those people. So what the book tries to do, and what I'm going to try and do this morning, for the half an hour, that, uh, if you'll allow me, is to tell you some of those individual stories. Because I think uh, the thesis of my book is that if we, if we tell some individual stories, hopefully we'll get a little bit closer to the reality. Hopefully I'll take you there, to this place, you'll see the world a little bit through the eyes of those people and hopefully then come to understand a little bit more, possibly empathise a little bit more. So I'd like to give you three stories uh, drawn from the book. The book is uh, about nine stories. I spent four years following those people living in the camp. The first one is about arriving in the camp what it takes to become a refugee, why people flee Somalia to come to this city in the desert. The second one is about surviving in the camp, what it's like to try and make a living, fall in love, get married in this place. Um, and the last one is leaving. How does one leave a camp, this camp? In, in many cases, people don't, which is why it's still very big. But there are some legal avenues out. So to start with, I'd like you to imagine a city the size of Bristol, 
about 350,000 people. That has been in the desert for 25 years, where people can't work and they can't formally leave. They can go back to the war zone to Somalia, but they can't go down into Kenya. There's a roadblock, there are police checks. There's no permanent plumbing, there's no permanent shelter, you're not allowed to pour any concrete, you're not allowed to work. The rations are UN dry rations of rice and beans. Uh, and as I said, these people have been stuck there for 25 years. So why would anybody want to come to this hellhole where it's 45 degrees in the dry season and in the wet season when it rains because the desert is on a, a bedrock of really hard stone? In fact, Dadaab means the rocky hard place, ironically, in Swahili. That bedrock is so hard that when it rains, the whole place literally floats. So why would anybody want to come here? The answer to that question is the story of Guled. So Guled was a young boy. I met him in 2010, just after he'd arrived in the camp. And he had come from Mogadishu, where he had been born. He doesn't really remember, but we, we did some maths. We, we tried to figure it out. And we think he was born in October 1993, which was the same month that those Black Hawk helicopters that you may remember were shot down in Mogadishu in the famous film or video game, depending on your generation, Black Hawk Down, where those helicopters hit Wardigley District near the stadium in Mogadishu. And that was exactly the district where Guled was born in 1993. And he grew up playing in the ruins of the city, playing in those, the shells of those helicopters. And for 16 years, he was scratching a living in the city. He was selling petrol, selling biscuits, driving a Matatu when he was from the age of about 14 to 16. And he was also going to school. He lost his parents, he was living with his sister, but he was still going to primary school. Because as you will have seen from the recent pictures in Syria, there are still people going to school, trying to survive, trying to make a living and continue in these places. And that's what it was like in Mogadishu. Until one day, he walked into his school, went to his geography class, a room about this size. The teacher had just written the date on the blackboard, and Guled was sitting in the, in, the in the rows of desks looking at the teacher's face, and he saw the teacher's face fall. And all the kids turned around and looked at the back, and what they saw was six armed men walking into the classroom with black turbans and Kalashnikovs. And they made all the boys stand up in the class, and they picked the seven tallest ones. And Guled's not a very big guy, but he was tall enough. And he was number seven. And they took those boys out of the school, they put them in a pickup truck, they blindfolded them, and then off they went zigzagging through the streets of Mogadishu. About an hour later, the blindfold was removed, and Guled found himself in a square enclosure, lots of other fighters, and he realized he was in an Al-Shabaab training camp. Now, Al-Shabaab is an Al-Qaeda-affiliated terrorist group in Somalia, and he had been conscripted. And his first thought was, I'm dead. That's it. I'm never going to see my sister again. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to survive. But he was lucky, because he wasn't sent to the front line. At that time, there was a, a big fight going on with the African Union peacekeepers in Mogadishu. Uh, all the able-bodied men were going to the front line, but he was 
tall enough to be selected but not quite old enough to fight. So what they did was they were using the soldiers to backfill the police. So Al-Shabaab has something called the Hizbat, which is a bit like our police, um, but they have a slightly different mandate. They do do traffic control. There's no overtaking in Al-Shabaab controlled areas. They patrol the shops to make sure that all the tins are not expired, that the shops aren't poisoning people. Um, but they have another mandate, which is morality. So they make sure in the, in the Al-Shabaab controlled areas that all the women are wearing skirts that are long enough, thick enough. They make sure that all the men have sensible haircuts, no mohawks, no earrings, no funny stuff. Um, and they also make sure that everybody is at the mosque during prayer time. If you're caught listening to music on your mobile phone, often what they'll do is take the SIM card and make you swallow it. Or if you're smoking in Al-Shabaab areas, sometimes they'll take the cigarette and they'll burn your face with it to make sure you don't do it again. <clears throat> All sorts of, of, of strange codes that men have to wear sandals, not closed shoes, because that's deemed un-Somali. Um, so Guled was in the Hizbat. And one day, after about a month in the training camp, he was patrolling in Mogadishu, making sure that everybody was going to the mosque. And his patrol came across three young children, really, buying vegetables in the market. And the shop that was rapidly trying to close up because they knew that the time was going. But they were too late. So the leader of the patrol shouted, lie down. And the three kids lay down. The elder one was a girl. And the two boys in the, in the patrol, 15 boys, all in their black uniforms, two boys in the patrol came forward with their whips. And they flogged these children. And Guled is watching. And as he's watching, he's, his eyes touch. That's how, how he put it. His, the, our eyes touched with the elder girl. And he thought, I recognize her in that sort of split second that you do. And before he could look away, he realized that, yes, he did recognize her. In fact, she was his wife. Because although it, they were both only 16, he, she was his sweetheart. But Somalia is quite a conservative country. If you fancy someone at school, you, what you do is you bunk off class, you go to the bus station, you pay $5, the imam crosses your palms over a Quran and says some words, and then you're married. So when you get together, it's halal, it's legal. Um, so she was his sweetheart, really, but technically his wife. So he had to watch. And he was terribly ashamed. He described himself, his skin was burning, is how he put it. And for her, however, she was relieved. Because the last time she'd seen Guled, he'd been escorted out of school blindfolded by these militiamen. So actually, she was quite happy that she knew he was still alive, even though she was being flogged. Of course, they didn't recognize each other. They didn't acknowledge each other. She went away. He went back to the training camp. And a little while after, he got the chance to escape. Very long story. I can't give you the whole book. I'd love to, but <laughs> I have to jump a bit. So he, he escaped. He got out of the camp. And he then decided to go to the refugee camp. And now this was a big decision because the refugee, the border with Kenya, where the refugee camp was, is 400 miles south of Mogadishu. 
So he had an incredible journey getting from Mogadishu south through the desert, through all these Al-Shabaab checkpoints to finally get to the border with Kenya. It's a movie in and of itself, but that's chapter two. You'll have to forgive me there. I can't <laughs> relay the whole thing. But he gets there to the border. And at the border, there's another problem because there's no UN office with a cup of tea and a blanket and a bus to the refugee camp, no. There's a line in the sand that the British drew in the, whenever it was, 1950, 1960, uh, and there's a lot of thorn bushes, and there's a hundred miles of baking desert before you can get to the refugee camp. Plus, there's Kenyan police patrols picking up refugees, ransoming them, stripping them of all their belongings, and dumping them back across the border in Somalia again. So you have to run a gauntlet to get to the refugee camp to even claim asylum. The big challenge, again, fast forward. It's a bit like Book of the Week. I'm sorry, I'm giving. <laughs> fast forward. So he gets to the refugee camp. In the refugee camp, he has another problem. Because I said uh, the nickname of this place is City of Thorns. Now, when the camp was founded in 1992, a family was given a plot of land, probably about a quarter of the size or half the size of this room, uh, and a tent. Now, after two years in the desert, usually the tent crumbles, disintegrates. So people cut down the thorn bushes in the desert. They make a hut out of thorns, and then they roof it with plastic or, or grass or whatever. And then around the border, as we all do, we like a fence around our garden, around our property. People plant little seedlings of thorns. It's the only thing that grows in the desert. Um, the comifora thorn, it, it, uh, it's, it's what myrrh comes from. Uh, and these thorns, they plant around their property, and it's called a live fence. The Somalis call it a living fence. Now, 25 years ago, those seedlings were here. Now, they're three meters tall. So the whole camp, arranged in these lines, sort of avenues that are several kilometers in length, is just these walls of thorns or in every direction, these big squares of thorns. And that is the geography of the camp. That's what it looks like. So for a young boy arriving from Mogadishu, he's looking around thinking, where the hell is the UN office? How do I navigate this place? It's spread over 50 square miles. There are five different camps, each one between 50 and 100,000 people. So it's absolutely enormous. Eventually, he gets to the UN office. He puts his claim, gets granted asylum. He's given a ration card, and that's the refugee's passport. Now, this ration card, he uses it to go to the food distribution, which is, happens every two weeks. It's a huge industrial operation. Forget the Dole office. This is like an airport, because you're not collecting cash. You're collecting food. So you need bags. And you go through all these different hangars, nine different hangars, with turnstiles, with bulletproof glass, men with machine guns, barbed wire, lots of security. You go through each hangar, you get your oil. Then the next one, you get your rice. The next one, you get your beans. And then if you're a lactating mother, you have a little bit of green supplement, some dried lentils or something to help. That's your food basket, what they call your food basket and it's 1,675 kilocalories a day. The World Food Programme has worked it all out and costed it uh, very closely. So he gets his bag of food. He goes out of the turnstile into the market. And what do you think the first thing he does with his food is? 
He survived for two weeks in the camp, scrabbling, begging, hungry, because he, he doesn't have any, he's not yet got his first food rations. Finally, he gets his food rations. He sells them. Because if you want anything in the camp, if you want money to buy anything, the only thing you can monetize, apart from your labor, and he was new, and the, the market's a very closed shop, is your food. So you sell your food if you want shoes, if you want soap, if you want to buy a phone card, which is what he wanted to do. So he bought a phone card and he phoned Mariam, his sweetheart slash wife, in Mogadishu, and said, I'm safe. I'm in the refugee camp. She said, wow, thank the Lord. How are you? He said, I'm fine. She said, what's it like? Because everybody's heard about the refugee camp in Mogadishu, but it's all full of rumor. It's very hard to get hard information. And he said, it's fantastic. There's free food. I've heard there's free education. I've heard there's free hospitals, both of which are true. Um, and I've heard that you can get resettlement to Europe or America. Not so true. And she said, wow, that sounds brilliant. Send me $50 so I can come. At which point, he's <laughs> he was heartbroken. Where do I get $50? I've just sold my weekly food ration for $2 to buy a phone card, to make one phone call. Where am I going to get 50 bucks? So he's distraught. She's very frustrated. Again, long story. Jump to chapter four. She does make it to the camp. She comes under her own steam. But when she gets there, she's horrified. She said, what is this hellhole? It's really hot. The food's rubbish. We don't even have a tent yet. He's on a waiting list because the UN doesn't have any left. And it's full of refugees. She doesn't consider herself a refugee. She said, at least in Mogadishu, we had a washing machine. Plus, she's got a secret. Because when she came, when they got married, they, they, weren't, they didn't go and get married for nothing. She's pregnant. So she gets to the refugee camp. She's five months pregnant. She wants fruit. She wants juice. She wants meat. She, my wife wanted M&Ms, but you, know, that, you can't get those in the camp. <laughs> So she wants all this stuff that you can't get. So the beginning of their married life, their honeymoon, if you like, in a camp, starts under these conditions, under these terrible conditions. Um, and that gives you some sense of what it takes to just get there and start a life in the camp um, under the, uh, you know, the enormous pressures on these young people. I'm going to stop Guled's story there, and I'm going to tell you another one now. Sorry to leave you on a cliffhanger. We'll come back to Guled ever so slightly at the end. So that's what it's like for people, new people coming, fleeing the recent war in Somalia. But as I mentioned, the cab camp was established in the 90s during the original civil war in Somalia, which was 25 years ago. So some of those people in the camp have been born there. And the, some of those people who were born in the camp are now having children in the camp. You've got three generations for whom the camp is their world, is their life. You know, uh, this, this sort of limbo land that's a bit like our world but very, very different. One of those people uh, was a young guy called Nisho. Now Nisho <coughs> is exactly the same age as, as the Dadaab complex. He's very proud of that fact. He's a, he considers himself the sort of living embodiment of the camp. And in many ways he is. He's a hilarious guy, very funny, always got a story. Um, 
but I'll, I'll, instead of his stories, I'm going to give you the story of his life briefly, very briefly. He was born in the camp. He gave up on education because quite soon he realized that wasn't going to cut it. There was probably little chance of leaving the camp. So he went to work in the market. And as I said, refugees aren't allowed to work officially. So all the jobs for the UN, all the jobs for the aid agencies are all reserved for Kenyans. But there's a massive black market. This is Kenya's third largest city. This is one of the biggest cities in East Africa. This is one of the biggest regional markets in the Horn of Africa. The market is spread over one kilometer. It turns over about $30 million a year. You can buy a JCB. You can buy an iPhone. You can buy Adidas trainers. You probably can find M&Ms if you try hard enough. Um, but in this market, Nisho made a living. He was a porter carrying, uh, unloading potatoes, tomatoes, unloading trucks, and, uh, and unloading sugar, actually, one of the main staples of the camp. There's a big sugar smuggling business. Um, but he was scrabbling a living, and he wasn't really making any money. And by the time I met him, 2011, he was 21 years old. The camp was that, that old. And he kind of wanted to get married. As he put it to me, a, a young man has needs. Um, but in the camp, there is a big, sh big problem. How do you raise enough dowry? Because traditionally, Somalis would acquire camels as a dowry. There, there are camels in the camp, but getting hold of them is quite hard, and they cost a lot of money. Nisho's earning a dollar or two a day. How was he ever going to get that money? And then, fortune smiled on Nisho. It wasn't smiling on Somalia because there was a famine. 2011, there was a, a very big famine. 250,000 people died. 200,000 people came to Dadaab. The UN declared a famine and the world woke up. Many of you might remember the appeals of the Horn of Africa famine that year. Lots of aid flowed into the region through Dadaab. Millions of bags of food, tents, all kinds of equipment. All that had to be unloaded off trucks and distributed among the, among the camp. So Nisho, working in the market, it was boom time. He was earning $20 a day, unloading all this US aid, rice, tents, all kinds of stuff. He was making money hand over fist. So by the end of the famine, he had a nice wad of money, which he thought was going to get him a dowry. Um, but he hadn't reckoned on one thing, which is that he was from the Rahawain clan, which is a little bit looked down upon by some of the other clans. So he went to some of the pretty girls that he had known in his childhood and said, here's all my money that I've made in the famine, what about it? And they said, no, go away. You're Rahawain, we don't want, I don't want to hear from you. So he was really distraught. He thought, finally, I've got some cash. How am I going to find a girl? And then he hit on an idea. There's all these poor people, starving people, coming from Somalia. Maybe they'll be cheaper. So he went to the, the slum on the edge of the camp, because the camp is a slum, but the new arrivals, who the UN couldn't process fast enough, were all being housed in an even more degraded slum on the edge of the refugee camp. He went to the slum on the edge of the refugee camp, and he, he looked up and down the lines, and he saw a beautiful woman. The first beautiful woman he saw, he went up to her and said, I love you. <laughs> He's like that. And if you met him, you, you'd, you'd credit it. And she said, don't be ridiculous. And he went away. And he came back the next day with fruit. 
and then he came back the next day with vegetables, and then he came back the next day with meat. And his parents said to the young, her parents said to the young girl, well, he's quite a nice guy, you know. <laughs> How about it? And she softened, and anyway, long story, quite quickly they got together and it was agreed that, you know, they were, they were going to get married. On top of this, Nisho was working in the market and he got wind of a, of a plan. And the plan was the Turkish government were going to uh, deliver, unlike the US who deliver all this dr dry food which the refugees don't like, the Turkish government consulted with the community and said, what would you like? And they said, well, we would like live food, not dry food, but live food. We'd like camels. So for the famine relief, what the Turkish government did was send hundreds of camels to Dadaab. And the community arranged that because they had a problem of dowries, they had a problem of these young people getting married in the camp, that they would allocate camels for young people to get married. So Nisho in the market heard of this plan and he was damned if he wasn't going to be on that list. So he made very sure that he was on that list. And this is running parallel with his seduction of Bilai, the young girl. So as the famine was reaching its apogee, Nisho is reeling in the starving girl, getting the camel to this conclusion at the end of Ramadan, Eid al-Fitri, where the camel is killed, he gets married, he, gets his, his, uh, he, he secures his bride, Bilai, and they live happily ever after. And they're still together now, they've got a couple of kids and they're, they're in the camp. Um, but that story shows you how surviving in the camp has a whole different meaning um, than you might think for refugees. And, and, and a whole different sort of mini-economy within the wider economy of the Horn of Africa and all these different things that are happening. Nisho, in fact, turned me on to a big smuggling racket that was going on within, between Al-Shabaab and the Kenyan army, who were actually in business together in Somalia, exporting charcoal and importing sugar into Kenya. And the Kenyan politicians were deliberately suppressing sugar production in Kenya in order to import all this cheap sugar and make lots and lots of money, about $400 million. Um, but, you know, for Nisho, this was just a funny story, but, you know, it ended up being quite a big story in the Kenyan media when I published it. But for him, <laughs> for him, he, you know, this, was, this is life, you know, this is all part of how he, he gets along. The last story, I'll just take a sip of water before I give you the last story, as the rain comes down. So Nisho grew up in the camp. The last person I'd like to tell you about also grew up in the camp. But unlike Nisho, she followed a different path. She was called Cairo, like the city, the Egyptian capital, Cairo. Her dad quite liked the name, so he named his daughter Cairo. She grew up in the camp. Her dad died quite young with her mum, very poor. And it became quite clear to her mother that this girl was smart. So she, when she was going to primary school, her mother was working uh, outside the camp, gathering firewood, cutting down these thorn bushes, the only thing that grows in the desert, bringing it to the camp as firewood, because 350,000 people need a lot of cooking fires. Um, so it's, uh, one of the things about Dadaab is it, it's an environmental disaster. For 100 miles all around the camp is just deforested uh, desert. 
She was part of that, getting firewood every day, in order to buy for her gifted daughter school uniform, pens, pencils, because free education is never free. Um, but also, what a student needs to study, most of all in the camp, is batteries. Because it, on the equator, and Dadab is dead on the equator, at 6 p.m., it's dark. So if you want to do homework, you need a torch, and you need batteries. And two batteries would usually last about two weeks. And then often Cairo would put them in the sun, because if you put batteries, it's a trick I learned actually, if you put batteries in the sun, uh, you get a lot, lot more juice out of them. So every two weeks when the rations came, that she would be, her rations would also be batteries. So she studied and studied, and when she finished primary school, she was among those who were selected for secondary school. Because although secondary school is free in the camp, there's a, a terrible amount of competition to get in. Um, and, but Cairo was, was clever, and she did it. And when she did it, her family had a huge party. They slaughtered a goat, there was lots of coke and what they call soda, coke, Fanta, everybody was celebrating that this smart girl had got into secondary school. And the reason the whole family was celebrating is because they th all of their hopes for leaving the camp were pinned on this girl. And that's because there's a scheme in the camp uh, called the World University Service Canada, where the top ten boys and the top ten girls who graduate secondary school in the camp are offered a full ride to do a bachelor's degree in Canada. So every kid at secondary school in the camp is dreaming about Canada, that they are going to be one of, those, one of those ten. And for four years at secondary school, often they're all in the internet cafes googling McGill University, British Columbia, deciding what de degrees they're going to do and so on. It exercises a huge pull on the imagination. So Cairo was one of those kids. And for the last year of high school, what they, the, the graduating students did was to form a committee. And the committee would contribute a few pence, a few shillings every week in order to amass a treasure chest, which they were going to use to hire a house that had electric light. So when the examinations came, they would all gather in this kind of purda to do their exams with the electric light so that they didn't have to spend money on batteries. And also they'd help each other and revise together. Uh, the girls too would cook for the boys and the boys get to study a little bit more, as always. So this was, her, this was her plan. This was what, what, what she was doing. So that final year, and I, when I was uh, getting to know Cairo, she was studying, studying, studying like crazy, dreaming of Canada. She even wanted to take her goat to Canada. It was the one thing she was most concerned about, was that if the Canadian university dorms didn't allow her to have her goat in her room, she would, earn, she would get an extra job to hire another room for her goat. No, Somalis love their goats. Anyway, so she's studying like mad, but this is also the time when Kenya declares war on Al-Shabaab and invades Somalia. So in the camp, landmines are going off, people are getting killed, there's all kinds of uh, insecurity. The Kenyan teachers are afraid, so they run away from the camp. And when it comes to the invigilation, the, the invigilators in Cairo's exam room are soldiers. 
So she ha when she has her two-minute toilet break, she has to go to the loo with a soldier, a male soldier, with a gun. Nonetheless, she tried to block it out. She studied like mad. Five months later, the results finally come out. And I went with Cairo, and we're looking at the lists on the wall and waiting to see what happened. And unfortunately, she just missed it. Tiny, by a tiny margin. But what she did, her mum was actually more disappointed than she was because of all this hope that a kid in Canada is then going to pull the others out of the camp to another life. Because she had some education, she was then employed as a, a, what's called an incentive worker. So no refugees can work, but the UN did a deal with the Kenyans and said, I know you don't want them to come over here and take our jobs and so on, but what about if we give them an internship? And it's kind of cruel because the, 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 the premise of this is that the refugees will gain experience that will serve them in the outside world when they finally cease becoming refugees. But of course this situation, this lim life in limbo goes on and on and on. So you never actually get to use that experience. So she is now a teacher in the camp. But she's earning more money than she's ever seen in her life because even an internship in the camp, it's slave labor by our standards and even by Kenyan standards. She gets $90 a month. But $90 a month means that she can have a pink mobile phone, pink flip-flops, a pink hijab. She can have lotion for her hands and her face and her mum can have all the clothes that she never, never had before. So it is nonetheless a good thing for her for now. So, I'm going to stop there with those... Sorry, I said I'd come back to Guled. I'll give you a, one last point about leaving the camp. When I left, uh, that, that route for Cairo is one of the legal routes, the, the education channel out of the camp. The other legal way out of the camp is to win the resettlement lottery. And this is the thing that, that uh, is so political, what David Cameron talks about when he talks about 20,000 refugees from the camps in the region. Um, these are the resettlement quotas which rich countries haggle with the UN over. Um, but very, very few people win those, those places because for Dadaab, about 2,000 people every year are relocated from Dadaab. The birth rate in the camp is 1,000 a month. So somebody like Nisho, what I, one of the things I admire Nisho for is he'd given up on that. He says, this is nonsense. I, if I keep waiting every two weeks going to see if my name is on the list, I'm going to finish my life. I might as well just get on with life here and accept that this is my home. So for many people, that's really a dream. But it's a dream that they still entertain despite themselves. And they're always thinking, maybe, 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 and they're stuck. Literally, their, their character, their self, their life is, is stuck. Now, when I left Guled last, last year, when I finished the book, I said to him, you know, it was very emotional because we'd spent a lot of time together writing the book, and then I was going away, and obviously I'm free, but he's not. He's stuck there, and, I, and we talked about what he was going to do next. And there were ration cuts because of the budget crisis in Syria. So... Mariam was pregnant again. He was getting half the rations, which are already starvation rations, half the rations that he used to get, and he's giving it all to Mariam and to the, the other child. 
and he was looking really thin, very drawn, one single grey hair on his head. He's half my age, he's, he was 22. Um, and he was distraught. He said, I, I don't know what to do. I don't think I have any, uh, any other option but to walk to Europe. Because, and he, he knew this was madness. He knew it was a kind of kamikaze mission. He knew about the, the likelihood of dying in the, in the med. Many of his friends had tried to do it. Some had died. Um, but he said, it's my only option as a man. It's my only honorable course of action because I can't stay here and watch my wife and child die. I have to do something. I have to try. So that's where I left him at the end of last year. Things have moved on. Like we can talk about that. But that's where I left him at the end of last year. And that's the kind of situation that was causing him to contemplate that journey. So those are the three stories I wanted to tell you this morning. We've still got, hopefully, a good chunk of time to ask or answer some questions. But I think it's, it's very interesting to look in detail at individual lives and at a particular place, because I think Dadaab says a lot about the origins of the refugee crisis, why we are where we are. It says a lot about the present situation. The bulk of people, of course, are in camps and in cities. They're not all in the Mediterranean or in Greece. They're actually in many of these other limbo situations. And I think it says a lot about where we're going because I think these kind of limbo cities are going to become more and more common. The EU's just given Turkey three billion to build a whole load of more refugee camps, um, these kind of temporary sanctuaries. Um, and with climate change, I think, I'm afraid, we're just at the beginning. We're going to see much, much more displacement, um, and we're going to have to think a lot more creatively and humanely about how we cope with it. So for now, with my stories, let me stop there, and let me invite some questions from you all. Thank you. Who's first? A lady there, yes. There's a microphone coming, sorry, one second. Just up, up there. What use is made of solar power in the camp? Okay, I'll take two or three questions at a time and then try and answer them together. Is there another one? Another lady right behind there? You mentioned you were free to go when Gula, and you left Gulit in the camp. What pressure was there on you to uh, pull strings to help any of the people that you interviewed to try to help them to get out? And how did you cope with that yourself emotionally because you must have wanted to do something? Yeah. I'll take those two questions first and then we'll have some more. Um, solar power in the camp is finally arriving very slowly. Um, but there's, there's so much politics to, to any kind of infrastructure development because Kenya doesn't want to invest in this place. It doesn't want to give it the patina of permanence because then the assumption is more and more people will come. And as it becomes more prosperous and, and, and more established as a city, uh, the, the re inhabitants won't want to go home. So Kenya's strategy is to make life as miserable as possible in the camp to encourage people to go home, which is the complete obverse of the UN declaration, which is that people should feel safe and comfortable so that they're free to return at a time of their choosing. Um, but there are solar-powered boreholes now, there are solar-powered street lamps. Um, it's arriving very slowly, but at the moment still there's thousands of litres of diesel consumed 
every every day because of all the boreholes that are running on these on these big generators. Um, in terms of getting people out, I mean that is the mo you put your finger on the most emotional part of the journey for me, um, because while I was writing the the book and researching the book, going back every few months for for, for a month or six weeks at a time, spending time with everybody, I was living their lives with them, and that was sometimes upsetting, but generally it was an, ex an exercise in solidarity, so it was, it was quite affirming. The hard point, point was leaving, and even harder was actually uh, three or four months later when I had the proof copies of the, of the book, and I put a big box together, and I sent my ten copies to the camp. And the, the only time I cried in the whole process was actually inscribing each book to the individual characters, because what do you say? You know, best wishes. Uh, you know, how is, where is their life going? Um, and so that was the, the really hard point for me. And yes, they, I mean, they never put pressure on me in, in a sense, but they often asked, you know, could you follow up on my case? Um, because some of them w had been selected for resettlement. And there's one story that I didn't tell this morning, which is in the book, of a couple who were fast-tracked for resettlement because they were at real risk in the camp, a Somali girl called Muna and a Sudanese lost boy called Monday, who got together, uh, Christian and Muslim, and her family tried to uh, execute their, their infant when it was born because they, they wanted to kidnap it and sacrifice it because they said it was a mutant. So they were supposed to be on a fast track to be out of the camp, but they were in the safe haven for three years. And they were going to the UN office and saying, please, please, you know, what's the problem? And the UN office just dismissed them as another hysterical refugee because every refugee who comes begging for resettlement is hysterical. Um, so they asked me to look into their case because I was staying in the UN compound, in this big green zone, separate from the refugees, where all the Westerners have to stay for risk of kidnap. And that's where all the UN workers live and work. You know, lovely bar, restaurant, tennis court, air-conditioned gym, etc. All there. And many of them never leave. So that was where I, because I had the access, I could follow up. And we realized all it took was an email to the country concerned where they had been accepted for resettlement. And they said, oh, sorry, we lost that file. Um, yes, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with it. And within three months, they were out. But it was just that one thing that needed to be done. So... I mean, I'm still involved in lobbying the UN to try and get some of them out, but, you know, th that's an ongoing process, and it's just what you would do as a friend, I think. And yes, it's upsetting, but, you know, that's where we are. Any other? Okay, so uh, lady there, and then gentleman with the glasses. Um, you mentioned uh, that just, just now, the Sudanese and Somali um, couple. Um, are the, the majority of the people, am I right, think Dubai are, are from Somalia, but are there quite a lot of people from Sudan and possibly other countries um, in conflict? And does that cause problems within the camp itself? Yeah. Okay. And can we have the question here as well? Um, actually, it's pretty much the same question. Because I was going to ask, to what extent do the conflicts which the people in the camp are fleeing permeate the camp itself. Yeah. Okay. And, and one over here. Sorry, the, the lady with the glasses, third row. That's it. 
I think I read mistakenly so that the camp you're referring to was going to be closed. Um, and also, I, I wanted to tell you, um, my husband and I have been working in, in the Louisville, Kentucky area with Sudanese refugees for the past nine years. And um, what we try to do is uh, whatever we can, help with jobs, um, help with clothing, just be friends. I mean, we're not even you know, helpers anymore, we're friends uh, in whatever way we can. Uh, I guess the reason we got interested is because we read the um, Dave Eggers, Valentino, a check, um, what is the what book, and that, that book, I mean, it did it, you know, and it will ever, you know, be very close to my heart. Um, also, I wanted to say that I think any refugee that experiences what you're talking about from Somalia or South Sudan, they all have a form of PTSD and it comes out in very, very different ways. Hmm. And I also lastly wanted to say that any Somali that we've met in the Louisville, Kentucky area is so industrious. There's so many businesses and they're so hardworking and I admire them so much. Hmm. Thank you. Okay, let me... Uh, deal with those three things together. So the, the other populations in Dadaab, Dadaab is 99% Somali, um, but many of those Somalis have come from Ethiopia because one of the sort of lesser known facts about Somalia um, is that it's actually original greater Somalia was much bigger. Was a, 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 a quarter of Ethiopia was Somalia, a quarter of Kenya was Somalia. Um, and Djibouti was Somalia, and, and all these lines that were drawn uh, mostly at the Berlin Conference in 1886 or seven, um, to do have actually messed up the nation, and that's a, a large part to do with a large cause of the existing problems. So many of those Somalis are actually from Ethiopia, although they don't always say that's where they're from. Um, there are a lot of Sudanese, there's quite a lot of Ethiopians, um, increasing numbers of Ethiopians as Ethi the Ethiopian dictatorship is beginning to unravel now but for the last 10-20 years there's been a steady flow of Ethiopians. There are some Ugandans from um, the, the spirit movement that Joseph Kony was the, the inheritor of, the, the originers of that, originators of that movement are in Dadaab. There's a small Congolese population, um, there's one Rwandan from 94 who doesn't want to go home, married a Somali, wants to stay there. So it's a, it's a crazy place. There's also an estimated 30,000 Kenyans living in the camp because it's the biggest market in northern Kenya. There's, there are welders, there are greengrocers, there are people selling cats, the Somali drug. There's all kinds of people in the camp uh, who have come there seeking opportunities. So it's this very weird mixed economy. And in terms of uh, sort of importing the tensions of the war and the intercommunal stress, um, yes, there are, there are clan, there's the main sort of source of insecurity is clan fighting, and it's clan fighting allied to smuggling. And the smuggling is controlled by Kenyan politicians, the Kenyan army, the police, and Al-Shabaab. So actually, it's, the, it's those clan tensions and how they play into basically a, a sort of mafia economy, if you like. The Kenyan government, I don't really think of it as a state. I think of it as a series of overlapping cartels controlling different industries and different networks. And that is the, the principal source, really, of most of the conflict in the camp. The other source is this, is religion, is, is this intercommunal strife, like Munday and Muna, where Muna's family were chasing Munday with spears. 
around the camp and the lost boys, Monday and Valentino Acek Deng were together fleeing Sudan in, 80, in 1987. He was a lost boy along with, with those guys. But some of them have been resettled to the United States, mostly the United States. The bulk of them are still in refugee camps in Ethiopia, in Kenya, and some have gone back to South Sudan. So those lost boys with their spears were fighting with the Somalis in the camp. So there's been a little bit of that. Not too much, but a little bit. So there is some tension. By and large, Dadaab is actually a very peaceful place. There's these business rivalries going on, but most people living in these blocks that they know all their neighbors for 20 years, they're very settled. There's a neighborhood watch system, it's called community policing, um, all funded by USAID. Uh, and everybody's pretty chilled out, to be honest. And they don't want to antagonize the Kenyan government because, yes, the Kenyan government has said that it will close the camp. So their response is to try and keep their heads down, live a quiet life. So uh, all of the justifications for closing the camp are that it's a hotbed of extremism. And that's nonsense. It's absolutely nonsense. You've got a largely rural population of people f with a very moderate view of Islam, a very moderate sect of Islam, Sufi Muslims from southern Somalia, super relaxed people who have no history of that kind of conservative extremism at all and who have no interest in al-Shabaab. They could go back to al-Shabaab any time they wanted, but they don't want to live in a, in a state governed by Sharia law. They want to stay here. And they want education, they want health care. You know. The clue is in the name. Extremism is really an extreme view. Um, so uh, you know, that's the, the sort of security picture in the camp, if you like. And, and it's a source of enduring frustration that it keeps being labelled as a nursery for terrorists when actually it's very far from it. Yes, sir? about the root of the problem, the wars in uh, Sudan and in Somalia, uh, and uh, whether in the foreseeable future these people would be able to return to a peaceful uh, country. Okay. And, sorry, yes, here. Um, I'm actually housing a refugee from Sudan, from Kismayo, uh, Pujuni. Um, he came here uh, in 2002, so just the other side of the coin is having arrived here, his parents were killed by Al-Shabaab and a friend in Kenya uh, sent him over here. But it's been 14 years and the Home Office have still not actually recognised him as a refugee, so he's actually like a refugee here, homeless, mm. no mm. money from the government, goes to food banks, emergency shelters, that's his status at the moment. And they would send him back, except Al-Shabaab are obviously still there. If anyone would like to take him over, by the way, I've had him six months. <laughs> and, you know, so I was thinking of uh, you know, passing him on. He's a nice lad. But you know, that's the other side of the coin. Even when they get here, they're not actually yes. necessarily yes. safe. No, or, absolutely. You know, with a life. Yeah, a lady behind and then over here. Within the camp, I'm imagining there are several international charities working uh, for the children's education, health, whatever. And I'm wondering if you get conflict between the charities and a sort of certain silo effect of that's my area, hands off, how, how that is dealt with. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and one other one here, the, it's, yeah. 
Hi, how did you meet the people in your book? Were you introduced to them or did you just sort of wonder about that mm -hmm. kind of thing? Yeah. Okay, so the, the optimism and the, the, the refugees here, and then I'll come on to the other question. Um, there have been some people going back to Somalia. Mogadishu is increasingly secure, or not necessarily secure, but stable, let's say. Um, a, a, lot of, um, a lot of the misunderstanding about um, war zones, I think, and, and Somalia in particular, is, is a question of detail. There are certain parts of Somalia that are more unstable than others. There are certain identities in Somalia for which you're more at risk than others, like being a Bajuni from Kismayo, which is a very small tribe of Bantu Swahili-speaking fishermen who don't annoy anybody, but Al-Shabaab needs those islands for its smuggling operation. So there are particular uh, uh, groups that are at risk. And then in Mogadishu, what looks like stability is actually just a kind of, st uh, so it looks like security, sorry, is actually just a stable business environment because Al-Shabaab has a, a total control on the protection racket in the, in the city. So as long as you're paying money to Al-Shabaab, whether you're a politician or a businessman, you're fine. So when you hear of a suicide bombing on a hotel in Mogadishu, it's probably because there's a politician inside who didn't pay his dues to Al-Shabaab, or the owner of the hotel didn't pay his protection money to Al-Shabaab. So it, a lot of it's to do with business. The war on terror in, is actually much more productively viewed through an economic lens rather than ideology. It's often not so much about ideology. So whether or not it's safe for somebody to go back is a very, very tricky thing to sift. And I, I take my hat off to anybody at the Home Office who thinks with confidence that they can pronounce on an individual's asylum claim, because it's a nightmare. Um, and they know, the refugees know, that there are certain identities in certain places that they are, are more likely to be granted asylum than others. So it's a very, very difficult thing. This whole idea of who is a genuine refugee is almost impossible, I think. I mean, they're all migrants and they're all refugees at the same time. Um, so optimism... I'm afraid not, really, because I th the way I see 21st century capitalism and, and the way it works is, is it, it increasingly we have a sort of militarized, um, yeah, militarized capitalism. I would think that it's a conflict economy in Somalia, where the, the way in which money is made and the way in which violence is patterned is to do with the economy. So, it, and if you, to make money in Somalia, you need guns. Uh, you need to have control over certain markets. And that, the only way you can do that in the absence of a strong law is, is weapons. So I, I don't, th and I think that's increasingly the pattern across the Horn of Africa, even in what look like peaceful countries like Kenya. Actually, it's more and more about force. Um, and as some people sort of stay out of the way and some people get involved and you know, daily life becomes generally more insecure. So I, I'm afraid no, on the optimism point. Um, on the, the, the question of NGOs and silos, there's pretty much every NGO you've ever heard of is in Dadaab. They have an office because they want a piece of the pie. The UN is spending a lot of money running this city, which they really shouldn't be spending because actually we should be facilitating this city to make money, to provide for itself. We should be taxing. They should be paying taxes to the Kenyan treasury. They, sh they could be an economic benefit. Um, and this is the, the sort of crazy thing facing any country that's hosting refugees. Really, the choice facing them is, do we want a city of half a million people earning money on the black market, um, being under the table, or do we want to legalize it 
and actually let them pay tax, contribute to the economy in return for acknowledgement of their rights and some kind of freedom to work and freedom to move and so on. That's the choice. It's not do we want immigrants or not. It's actually do you want illegal immigrants or do you want legal immigrants. And there's, control is a myth. You know, it's, it's, slightly, it's ever so slightly less of a myth in the UK because of the, the sea. But by and large, even as we've seen in Greece, it's a myth. You can't control it. You can just manage it better. Um, and in terms of, uh, sorry, I didn't answer your question. The silo and them all fighting with each other. Yes, it's, it's political as hell. They're all about budgets, all about um, you know, estimates and everybody. They don't want to, to the refugees to get cash instead of food because that would put certain NGOs out of business. So everybody's lobbying the UN for, for their own corner. Um, it's an industry and it's, a, it's very messy. But it's all we have at the moment. Um, in terms of picking, uh, picking refugees, I interviewed 100. Um, some of them I knew from before because I used to work for Human Rights Watch in the region. I'd been to the camp. Um, and then I heard particular stories. So everybody in the market said, you've got to go and meet Nisho because Nisho is a real character. And it's true. If you read the book, you'll see he's a real character. Um, but I had a certain balance I wanted. I wanted a certain number of women, certain number of men, certain number of older people, certain number of younger people. Um, and I also wanted ordinary stories. I didn't want the lurid, um, you know, the, the, the really crazy stuff. Because actually, everybody in Dadaab has an amazing story. Um, and what's, uh, what's so moving about the, those stories is their ordinariness. You know, especially like Gouled and Marianne trying to raise a family in the camp. It's a very ordinary story, but incredibly powerful. Okay, one last question and then we've got to wrap it up. Yes, sir. Well, one last round of questions. I'll take as many as I can. How does a, a democratic government... You mentioned that the best thing for Kenya in this instance would be to establish this as a proper city and have taxes. How does a democratic government persuade its large unemployed people that this is the case? Or indeed, it doesn't have to be in Kenya. Mm, it could mm. be in Brexit, Britain. Yes, it's yes. the same story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good question. Uh, lady at the back. I'm just wondering about creativity. Um, perhaps every day is spent just trying to put food on the table, looking after the family, maybe trying to run a business. But, and creativity is probably really required just, just to do that. But um, is there any scope for sort of music, um, arts, any, anything? Yeah, OK. Those are my last two. Sorry, la very last, this man here with the glasses. <laughs> I'll pull them together. Sorry, thank you very much indeed. I, I just wonder if you get any brief comments on the, the public policy response, I suppose. So what's your view about the UN <coughs> and its role there, about the European Union, about the UK, potentially mm. the US as well, about their role and in, in, in this situation and, and what more could be done to to resolve yeah. the problems you've described? Well, I think these two questions are linked. So I'll deal with the, the, the culture question, for the creativity question first, and then these two. Um, in the camp, the, the UN is a kind of cultural hegemon. So if NGOs could run the world, Dadaab might be <laughs> a glimpse into what it might look like. Because all of these people, like Cairo, Nisho, they've grown up in the Kenyan school system with a UN calendar. So all of the things that they celebrate, all of the, where the budget is allocated for, is celebrations for Plant a Tree Day, International Violence Against Women Day, International Toilet Day, Global Hand Washing Day. These are the, 
you know, these are the campaigns and the, and the moments that are celebrated. So there was a huge festival for, um, you know, Bednet Day, get rid of malaria. There was a massive festival. Everybody's going around with stickers and, you know, music. And, you know, don't you celebrate in malaria, day, you know, eradicate malaria day in London? I said, no. <laughs> but they think, they feel that there is this international uh, sort of community that they want to be part of, and that is where they see it. So the UN is not giving money for, you know, weddings or traditional... Somali festivals, they have to contribute that money themselves and there's, there's very little money to go round for things like that. So many weddings now, and it's something that people lament, are silent because people don't have the money to pay the musicians and the musicians don't, don't work for free. Um, I have met several novelists who've written whole novels in exercise books because that's the only paper that you can get in the cap. Um, and S Somali oral poetry is a big thing and that will always survive wherever there are Somalis. Um, but the interesting thing from an anthropological point of view is the way in which the culture has been so shifted by the, the UN patrimony. Um, in terms of po policy response and uh, encouraging a democratic government to do the right thing, um, everybody's scared. And everybody's scared, democratic governments are scared of their, their populations. Um, and, you know, I, I spent a little bit of time working in, in politics in the UK and it was kind of axiomatic that you don't talk about immigration. You just do not raise the subject. Um, and I think that uh, this is a shame because the, and this is a challenge for all progressive uh, people, whether in politics or in international organisations, because the reality that every economic study shows is that refugees are a net benefit to economic growth. Plus, I think they're a net benefit to the creativity of, of a country. Certainly, Justin Trudeau made a big speech at the World Economic Forum this year saying, we want refugees, not just because it's the right thing, not just because they contribute to our economy, but also because they're, creating, they're contributing to the diversity and the creativity of the economy in terms of imagining new, new apps and new products and you know, new, new things for the internet. So. The, the challenge facing all of us, I think, and, and especially the, the democratic governments, is in moving the conversation towards the future, really, and saying, well, you know, who do we think we want to be, and how do we want to make that happen, and how are we going to manage this system which we can't control? This, every government since Tony Blair says we're going to be tough on immigration, we're going to manage immigration. Ed Miliband had it cast in stone. But you can't. You can't. And, and also, there are so many powerful forces within the Conservative Party that want freedom of movement, that want cheap labour. They also don't want regulation of labour. So the tricky thing, actually, in terms of Kenya and in terms of Brexit Britain and everywhere, is actually making it work fairly for everybody. Because a big part, I think, of the, the, the hostility towards a heterogeneous workforce is that it's not fair. Is that there are some people who are willing to work for less. And of course they are, because they're desperate. So the last example I'd like to leave you with is these what's called special economic zones in northern Iraq and in Jordan, where the World Bank is making preferential financing available, so companies are getting cheap credit, and in return what they must do is hire refugees and host communities together. And it's working. Um, and the, UN, the Jordan has relaxed its work permit laws for refugees, it's allowing them freedom of movement to go and work in these new places. So that is the future, is using these institutions that we have, which are flawed, don't always work, but trying to use them creatively 
to manage the problem to make everybody a winner. Thank you. Right. Um, as you see, it's a, an enormous subject. I'm sure we could have done another hour, uh, but sadly we don't have that. Um, I'm sure Ben will be happy to take uh, individual questions um, during the book signing, which will be in the bookshop. So if you go out of this theatre to the right, uh, we'll be in the bookshop there. Thank you very much for coming today. Thanks for your questions. Thanks most of all, of course, to Ben Rollins. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Ed Book Fest.